Jesus Christ must be listened to. He must be believed. He must be obeyed. This is what Mark will begin to build on in chapter 4. On the heels of Jesus' statement, if you remember from 3.35, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mark, along with the other gospel writers, does not randomly throw in miracles or the mighty works of Jesus throughout his gospel. The, the amazing things Jesus does are not like a garnish that are kind of just thrown in sporadically to improve the appearance of the story. Mark places this story of Jesus calming the wind and the waves with his voice at the end of a section on the word he speaks and the kingdom whose arrival that word pronounces. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel of God and the arrival of the kingdom. Chapter 4 falls kind of in the middle of the first act of Mark, so to speak. It helps us take stock of what's happened so far, as well as kind of, kind of show us where we're headed from here. The responses to Jesus are a big deal in Mark, and they've been very, uh, they've varied to say the least. They range from belief that results in following him on the one side, to accusations of being possessed by and in league with Satan and plots to murder him on the other side. But in Mark, Jesus is the crucified king. He appears to be unsuccessful. He appears to lose in the worst way possible. It appears on the surface that he's not being very successful. But Jesus wants those listening to him to know that no matter how hidden This glorious kingdom he's bringing seems to be, no matter the amount of rejection or opposition to it, it is going to completely overcome the world as we know it. Jesus will be crucified, but Jesus is the king. His word is powerful. Beloved, his word is perfect, and we must listen to him. The word of God spoken by Jesus Christ is perfect to accomplish all of God's saving purposes. Let me pray. Father, I ask for your grace this morning to preach your word. I literally cannot do it unless you give it to me. So, Father, please watch over me as I speak. Watch over my heart. Watch over all those who hear. Help us all hear your word well. Watch over me to that end and be glorified, Father, in these next moments in our lives, in our souls. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first nine verses of Mark chapter 4 to you. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. 
Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you were not in Jesus' inner circle, those nine verses are all you got. That's all you heard Jesus say. A parable about how farming works, which is probably almost everyone that was listening to him already knew. Why does Jesus tell this parable? Because it seems like, or he tells it like its meaning and its importance are absolutely crucial for those listening to him. That word he uses, listen, in verse 3, that's the Greek word akute. It's a commandment. Right? Listen to me. You listen to me. And very interestingly here, that Greek word is a derivative of the word for to obey. When he says, listen, Jesus is calling for the kind of hearing that affects the heart, that prompts an obedient response. But all he does is tell a farming parable to that crowd. And then he says, you who have ears to hear, let him hear. For those of you who understand what I just said, keep listening. Jesus wanted them to get something out of this then. Jesus didn't teach in such a way that he would build a huge following. In fact, um, Jesus taught in such a way that he would thin out a crowd. So that the only people listening were those who actually wanted to follow him. That's what Jesus was doing in part when he spoke. Thinning out a crowd. What this parable actually reinforces is that Jesus himself is the sower. He's he's telling them God is beginning to farm his crop in the world through the word spoken by his son. Here's the meaning now of the parable of the sower. Pick it up with me in verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that They may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But... Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Remember chapter 1 verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The end time sower of God has come into the world. That's how Jesus apparently obviously understands his mission as one who goes out to sow the word and in so doing, by so doing, build the kingdom of God. And he sows it apparently generously and indiscriminately. It falls on hard paths. It falls on stony soil, thorny soil, and then good soil. How that soil responds to the teaching, to the seed, decides whether one will be included or excluded 
from the kingdom of God that comes in the person of Jesus. Now notice this. Jesus saves the explanation of this parable for his 12 disciples and a group of people who apparently were a part of a larger inner circle of Jesus. And to them, Jesus says, to those on the inside, so to speak, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. What's hidden about it. That's why Jesus explains the parable to them. It's been given to them to know it. What Jesus is explaining to them is hidden from the general public, from those who don't receive Jesus for who he is, right? Those on the outside, he would call them. Look at 11 again. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. So so it's not something they got or understood on their own. It was given to them to receive it. It's prohibited for others. It's given to them. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. In Mark's gospel, parables are not simply a teaching method. They're the primary form of God's revelation. The gospel whose focus is the king who was crucified. Jesus is talking about soil, how the heart hears his word. These parables are not teaching a person how they should act. They are teaching what the kingdom is like what soil is like, what the seed is like. And apparently, the coming of the kingdom is such a mystery to human hearts that it can't be communicated except in parables that both reveal and conceal, depending on the soil, at the same time. For those outside, for those who have rejected Jesus, you don't change the seed, but he speaks to them in parables so that they won't understand him. That's precisely why he teaches this kind of cryptic way so that they won't embrace him so that they won't repent of their sins why would jesus do such a thing so that those on the outside are irrevocably damned forever no we we know now the only unpardonable sin is blaspheming the holy spirit by which jesus does his works he does this because the building of the kingdom requires the death of the king That's why Jesus does this. And if his opponents turn, he will not be crucified. Beloved, Jesus is here preaching so that what is hidden will be revealed. That is why he must go to Calvary so that it may be. Jesus is teaching in a way to ensure his death, beloved. That's how perfect his word is. It accomplishes precisely what it goes out to do including the rejection of Jesus. Look at verse 13. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Right. Talking to those on the inside. Right. If you don't understand me now, you're not ever going to understand me. This was the time of Israel's visitation. If she doesn't embrace her Savior, she loses everything. And instead of them, this kingdom will be given, as Jesus would say, to those who produce its fruits. And so he describes the soils allegorically to show how different people hear. And all of these descriptions, if you look through them, relate to what people want Jesus to do for them as opposed to those who just want Jesus. That's what this parable reveals. For some, Satan deceives them when they hear so that the word never is planted, never takes root. They reject Jesus altogether. For others... 
They hear the word Jesus speaks and initially, initially they receive it with joy, but there's no root. So they only endure until the word causes them tribulation or persecution. In other words, they want comfort and ease and gain more than they want Jesus. He sounded good, like he was the path to those things when they first heard him, as of so many who follow him just so that he will heal them. But when following him means they won't receive those things, that instead tribulation, persecution, difficulty will come, they desert him. Still for others, the cares of this world, it's a very common thing, it's not an evil thing. The deceitfulness of riches, what these people want, what they fear not getting, what they crave Jesus would give them, chokes out the word, literally chokes it out. The word can't breathe in soil like that. Only one soil is spoken of positively, the soil that heard and accepted the word and bore fruit, that that which grew a crop. And the same word is spoken to all the soils. There's no difference in the seed. So what makes the difference in the soil then? This parable and its interpretation don't explain to a person how to become good soil. The good soil is simply said to be good soil. Now, in light of all scripture, how can that be? That there's good soil out there. Paul says when he's quoting David from the Psalms in Romans 3 that no one is good. No, not one. He also says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural person in his flesh does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He says elsewhere in Romans that nothing good dwells in the flesh, that those in the flesh cannot submit to God. It's impossible. In Ephesians, he tells us that we're dead in trespasses and sins. The Old Testament prophet asks, can a leopard change his spot? Can can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? No. Right? It's how deceitfully wicked the human heart is. Jesus Christ himself says in John 3 that the Spirit gives us life. The flesh is of no help at all. So soil is not cooperating with the Spirit. That's not how soil becomes good. There is no good soil in and of ourselves. Later in John 10, Jesus says there's people who don't believe because they're not part of His sheep. Being a sheep comes before believing. So what's all this talk about good soil? Well, it comes on the heels of the context of Isaiah and God's sovereign work in the hearts of people. The implication brought out by his reference to the sovereignty of God in Isaiah lets us know good soil is made receptive by the grace of God or else no soil will receive and keep the word. The insiders then are not smarter, brighter, better than the outsiders. The insiders are the opposite of what Isaiah is talking about. Rather than being prohibited, they are given grace to hear and accept the word. Made able to receive the word by God's grace. That's shown by the fact that they're here. They're still with him. They've been stirred by Jesus' teaching. They come to him to learn more, to listen, not to give. I don't think Jesus is condemning the people that are rejecting him forever in by quoting Isaiah. I think Jesus is saying when I am revealed at the cross is when people may believe in me 
And if I don't keep them from believing in me, I'm not going to get crucified. This is God's design in the world. But what is hidden will be revealed. Everyone hears. The issue is how one hears. And for those who want to hear Jesus, apparently, as we'll find, more understanding comes. For those who don't, only misunderstanding comes. These are the ones who are outside, as Jesus calls them in verse 11. Obviously, that includes the Pharisees and scribes plotting against them. Herod, the demons, of course, obviously. But the text doesn't name those who are outside specifically. It just calls them that. And then he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. In verse 9, the outsiders are those whose indifference to Jesus or rejection of him makes his parables impossible to understand. Those on the outside don't understand anything Jesus says or does, and so exclude themselves from the kingdom unless they repent. The issue is how we hear the word. And what becomes apparent is that we are all in desperate need of God's grace in order to respond properly to the seed. Ask the Lord to help you receive his word right now. Don't try to figure out what kind of soil you are. Realize if God doesn't give you grace, you cannot be saved. Cry out to Him. Call out to Him. Ask His Spirit to illuminate your mind and help you understand. He will not turn you away. Notice that soil doesn't go back and forth from good to bad. You see that? It's not like you just go in and out. Like we lose our salvation and get it back. Lose our salvation and get it back. If the soil is good... If God gives the grace to believe, the seed remains and it grows. And by the way, none of us gets to determine the rate. Right? Some are 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Let the Holy Spirit decide what fruit He's going to bear in His people and where. We don't determine whether or not somebody's saved by their rate of growth, by the amount of fruit. Right? Later on, it's going to become apparent to us that we don't have that kind of knowledge. We go to sleep. He will go on to say, God makes the seed grow and bear fruit. If the soil is bad, notice that the seed doesn't remain. If the soil is bad, if God's not giving his grace, the seed is never going to grow in the heart of such a person. Jesus then puts everybody on a level playing field. The sower and his word are the point of reference now for the destiny of all humanity without exception. This is God's design being revealed In this parable of the soil, salvation comes to the heart where the word of Jesus takes root and grows, which we find in this next section is demonstrated by an increasing desire to learn of him. Jesus continues to reveal himself as the king, as the focal point of God's revelation. Pick it up in 21. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? That's a definite article there. It should be the Is the lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Notice that. Jesus doesn't solve the tension there. Well, you just said that there are some people that the parables will deliberately confuse. And then you say, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Isn't it already decided? That's not how Jesus thinks. That's how we try to get around difficult doctrines in Scripture. Just pretend they're not there. There's no tension here for Jesus. If you have ears to hear what I'm saying, listen to me, he says. 
And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So, first of all, despite the hidden nature of the kingdom, it is not going to be concealed permanently. The light of the world is shining, beloved. Jesus is the burning and shining lamp that was brought into our world in order to be seen in order to be revealed. And through the word he proclaims, the word he sows into the soil of human hearts, he exposes everything and everybody. He brings about God's will for the entire cosmos and for the salvation of every human being, or whether salvation from God is rejected, he brings all of it to light. He is the lamp. What's hidden now is the fact that he is the Son of God who will be crucified in weakness and raised by God's power. What was hidden in God's design for the Messiah then is that his vindication will come through his humiliation. And it's that very thing that determines for most apparently in Israel whether or not they will follow Jesus. This is the Jesus that must be embraced, the one that died in this world, that was rejected by this world. This is the way to life. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention to what you hear Jesus saying. And don't make Jesus say things he didn't say. Jesus is talking about us too. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And notice what he says. Pay attention to what you hear. Again, to what you listen to. Pay attention to what you let tell you what is true. Why? Well, that goes back to the parable of the soils. Look at 24 and 25 in light of the parable of the soils. That's where we are. We're in the same discourse here. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, how you are gauging the words of Jesus, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not... Even what he has will be taken away. He's talking about hearing the word. Look look at verse 24 in light of verse 8. For those who hear the word of Jesus and believe, he keeps revealing, he keeps giving, while the one who refuses to hear ends up losing everything. Beloved, our growth, our growth in the word as Christians today is a matter of desire to know Jesus. If that's not why you're reading the Word, you are not going to grow God's way. I believe churches, or at least so many of the people in them, often stagnate, right? This becomes business as usual. Again, keeping the doors open, keeping the lights on, keeping the traditions going, We see that as a sign of health. It it, it could be a sign of stagnation when those things become more important than the other things. Right? It it always is grievous to me. Are we doing this thing? Are we doing that thing? We've done that for years. How many disciples did we make last year? Right? Certainly you don't think that's just my job. You can't make disciples from a pulpit. That's life on life. 
Right? Nobody asked those questions. How are we going to reach the people across the street? What about all the people in our area addicted to opioids? What are we going to do? You say, well, what are we supposed to do? I don't know. I know we have Jesus, though. Like, it gets to the point where, it, where it's not even church anymore, right? We, we just don't realize it. It's like a club of like-minded people. We all like the same kind of music, so that's the only music we want because that's what we like. That's what we're used to, and church becomes like that. It's just, it's just a matter of catering to traditions and catering to preferences. Jesus is like a figurehead, like, like we're Christian here. It, it seems like where Jesus is present, the Word is present, and disciples are being made, and people are getting saved. We don't ask those questions. Pay attention to what you hear. Because what is presently hidden now will not always be concealed. Because the light's shining. And it's going to keep on shining until the end. Jesus is the light that reveals the heart's Of all humankind, beloved. There isn't a person in the world. It doesn't matter how hard or loud they reject him. Every single person on the planet will give an account to Jesus Christ. The church mustn't hide him. We must not conceal him. We are here that Christ may be known. We are here to shine the light. If nothing, it doesn't matter what is happening if that's not happening. We can't obscure him. And what we say, our message can't obscure him. He is the light. The light wasn't brought in to be hidden, to be set aside, to be peripheral. The light was brought in to be put where everybody could see it and shine. By the same measure with which we proclaim Christ, we will know Christ. Or vice versa. By the measure we conceal him with ourselves, we'll remain in darkness. Pick it up in 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. We've seen this before here. But this time he says, he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So Jesus returns to this image of the seed. But this time, he doesn't talk about the different soils it falls into. He talks about the nature of the seed itself, which he reveals is one of the most, or with one of the most amazing scientific things that exists in nature. We plant seeds, we farm and go to bed. And sleep. Overnight, rain falls on the seed. The next day, sunlight warms the seed. And then the earth yields a crop. All we did was plant. All we did was sow. That's how seeds work. And Jesus is saying, that's how the seed of God's word works. The kingdom grows. So what he's talking about in 1 through 20, right? That happens. That growth happens like seeds grow. That's how God's word works. The earth produces by itself. So does the word. We are all, all we are called to do is sow the word, not make it grow. Right? When I talk about the people across the street, the community, I'm not talking about what we can do to make conversion happen. No, 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 no. 
I'm saying, are we sowing the word into those soils? Right? The, the word produces the crop by itself while you and I are sleeping. Do you know what God is telling you here? Listen, I'm letting you be a part of this. You can sleep for 8, 10, 15 hours a night, whatever you need. I'm going to make it grow. You sow. You scatter seed. We simply reap the harvest, beloved. We don't cause it to happen. Jesus doesn't call us to figure out what kind of seed people are either. He's calling us to trust the power of his perfect word. The word is able to bear fruit by itself. It just needs to be sown. What you and I say and do then, it might seem so insignificant, right? Our little contribution. But listen, just sow it and go to sleep. That's all you have to do. Who knows what God is doing? Who knows? God is going to give the increase. Plant the seed. Go to sleep. God will make it grow. Does it make any sense with with the, the weight of trouble and suffering and the burdens of the world that God wove it into our biology, into our DNA, that for eight hours a night at least, every 24 hour span, we have to shut down and accomplish nothing? Why would he make us like that when there's so much to be done? Because it's not about what we do. It's about the word. Sow it for 16 hours. Sleep for eight. I'll take care of it. God doesn't need you 24-7. We should get over ourselves and fall in love with the Word. Just don't doubt the Word. Don't doubt the potency of a Word that only needs a little bit of sowing and a little bit of time to take root. Trust it. It's perfect. It's powerful. Sleep then, when you think about it, is as much an act of faith as trusting the Word to give the increase. God doesn't need our help to make the seed grow. He doesn't need our experiments or our talents. He doesn't need our input. It drives me crazy when people talk about that. Man, if that person would just get saved, imagine what they could do for the kingdom. The, the, the word, we still have the word. We just don't have, you know, Chuck, whatever, whatever you want to call him. Just, we don't have that guy, so we can't really, if we had him, we'd really be potent. No! He might get in the way because he's so talented. Right? God is looking for the guy in the field playing the harp, killing bears and stuff. The tall, good-looking brothers, nah, no, no, right? The problem with the reception of the Word has never been a matter of the seed. The problem is always in the soil, right? And it's not a problem we are able to fix, so we just sow. We must trust what our Lord says is the nature of this kingdom. This is how it works. Sow the word. Go to sleep. In most soils, it won't take root. In some, it will. It's up to me. I'm doing it. You who have ears to hear, let him hear. You sow the word. I'll reap the results. Trust me. The king is coming. Don't be afraid. It looks hidden now. It's going to explode. That's what he's saying here to his people. That's what evil does in the world. We watch all this happening around us. We feel like the country's falling apart, like the world's falling apart. Yeah, it always has been. The Word remains. Just the Word. It was here long before we were. It will be here long after. If we want to leave a legacy, let it be the Word. The world doesn't need my name. It doesn't need to know what I've accomplished. It doesn't need to know what I'm good at or what I can do. It needs the perfect Word. Everybody in this room can speak it. Everybody. It's right here. Quote Jesus, you'll be fine. Look at 30 to 34. Look at this. And he said, 
with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Jesus, first of all, is speaking in hyperbole here, of course. Botanists know that of seeds that are more minute than the mustard seed, but that this point isn't scientific. His point, once again, is the nature of the kingdom and the power of his word. This is is such a powerful image. To the casual observer, the ministry of Jesus was largely insignificant. To us, it's it's everything. It's a huge deal, and it really was, but it didn't look like that at the time. His inner circle was very small. Jesus is emphasizing the link between his coming and the arrival of the kingdom with these parables, as well as the fact that the arrival of it is, is very hard to see, very hard to identify or discover. But the past, present, and future all belong to God. The imagery of a little mustard seed cuts across all our notions of triumphalism when it comes to following Jesus and his way. That's not how the kingdom will look in this world, big and grand. It will not win the day. It will not take over. I don't, my my view of the end times is not that we're heading towards utopia. It will look small and insignificant, insignificant until the end. That's what we should expect. That's how we should act about it and, and quit trying to take over. That's not the design. Again, Jesus Christ has already overcome the world. It's already His. Go to sleep. Notice how the image of a tiny mustard seed that becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. Think about how much that pales in comparison to Old Testament expectations of what the kingdom would be like, which, which is part of why Jesus was so rejected. It's, not, it's like he's not talking about the same thing. Right? The grandiose cedars of Lebanon. If you want to talk about trees, that would be it's portrayed in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 17 is a great example. This glorious tree associated with earthly empires that have oppressed Israel but would be destroyed by God. That's the image Why not talk about a a bigger tree, right? A a, a grander one. Well, that's not how the kingdom of God manifests itself, beloved. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus has made it so he's easy to dismiss. So that the soil of those who don't love him won't claim his name. There's nothing really that awe-inspiring about the largest plant in a garden. Or the birds of heaven taking shelter under a tree of about eight feet is what that would be. But beloved, Jesus is always sowing the word, always tilling the soil. doesn't matter what it looks like. He's, he's dashing cherished hopes and delusions of grandeur here. He never lied to us, ever. The, the church will never be cool. It will never be mainstream. It will never take over. 
The kingdom won't look like the kingdom here. It does not fulfill dreams of earthly human triumph. But one day it will surpass all of those dreams. God works in the most mundane and in the grandest moments to bring about his plan for the consummation of the ages in mustard seeds and in snoring, apparently. What matters is the ongoing sowing of the seed, the ongoing proclamation of his word, his perfect word. Now, okay, we've got all that in our minds, beloved. I want you to notice, I want us to notice how Mark closes this section down. I do think we're meant to see this chapter as a unit where the theme holds across the entire passage. And one of the ways Mark tries to do that is by reminding us in verse 35 that this all happened on the same day. What we're about to read and all that he's been saying, God will build the kingdom by his son's sowing of the word. It will not be grand. It will be rejected by all but one kind of soil. It will not fulfill expectations of earthly triumph. It will often seem like Jesus is not with us or Jesus is rejected far more than he is accepted, like his church is dying more than it's thriving. We'll wonder if the word of God can actually raise the dead. We'll wonder if it's enough. We'll wonder if we shouldn't add to it or change it or tweak it. That's where this story finds its place here. It's not just about stilling the water, beloved. It's about stilling our souls. Look at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him, they took him with them in the boat, and just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. We've seen sleep in this passage. Jesus isn't worried. Jesus isn't worried. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's what sleep looks like. Don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus is saying, How can you ever doubt my word? Beloved, who cares what the kingdom looks like to frail and fallen human minds? Who cares what people that don't love Jesus think of his word. I don't mean that in a mean way about them. I'm saying for our sakes, when he speaks, the wind and waves literally obey. What makes you think if God wants a person, they can refuse him? Jesus came, beloved. He came here. He walked among us. He does care. That we are in fact perishing. He cares very much. He cares more than we can possibly imagine. This is the word 
that brings peace, this word that is sown into the soil of human hearts. It's the word that gives peace. It's the word that brings calm. Jesus Christ is the Savior that calms the raging inside of me. Jesus asks, what sense fear has in light of his word? His own disciples doubted his love for them, doubted his ability for them while he was with them. Of course, sent from heaven on a boat made of wood that he created on water that he spoke into existence. Do you care about us? Beloved. Jesus says to them what he says to you and me today. I'm here, aren't I? I'm here. Stand up. Believe my word. Trust my word. Do not be afraid. Even the wind and the waves have the good sense to obey this word. Jesus sows a word that controls the wind and the waves. Literally. Could you imagine? I had the opportunity one time. This is probably 1997, 98, to sit in a room and watch the Jesus film, that old, the, the old British one, which is very good, with, with, with some people that didn't know anything about the story of Jesus. And in that movie, when he stood up on the boat in this scene and rebuked the wind, they were blown away. It was amazing to watch. I've heard that story since I was in Sunday school. I'm not putting that down. You understand what I'm saying? They were blown away by this. They looked at each other. They asked what they asked here. It, that's, that's the response it's meant to elicit. Who is this? That even the wind and the seal, could you imagine having been there? Do, do, you, do you know what would happen if, you know how every dad in America with his jean shorts and new balances is going to, when there's a tornado warning, is going to walk out and stand on the front lawn, right? Look for it. Get his hands, right? Every, most dads, are going to do that. I'm going to be downstairs under the table with Doritos and Nutty Bars. I'm not chancing that. But most dads are out there in the front lawn. I don't know. It doesn't look like it to me. You know, could you imagine? Just stop. Be still. And it happens. That happens in the context of 34 verses on the Word, beloved. He sows a word that, by the way, he's telling them, controls the wind and the waves. In other words, it will accomplish precisely what I mean it to. You just sow it and trust me. That's, that's the place of this story in Mark's gospel. You sow this and it will do exactly what I want it to do. He's already saying it does that. Where I want it to be rejected, it'll be rejected. Where I want it to be embraced, it will bear fruit. Because if I talk to the wind and the waves, they do what I say. You trust me and sow this no matter how it looks when you sow it. Trust me. Trust me. He's more worth listening to than any other word in all creation. Don't talk to yourself. Or, beloved, don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. These seed parables affirm that God has sown his kingdom. It has arrived. We don't need to question that. It's growing all the time. At the same time, the interim between its initiation and its consummation is going to be a time of difficulty because its growth into the beautiful tree it will be is not always going to be visible. Very rarely will it be visible. I think only 31% now 
of the world's religion is Christian, and that's using a very generous definition of the word Christian. Failure is a lot more common than success. Evil coexists with good, seems to overcome it all the time. The victory Jesus is talking about can only be seen with the eyes of faith. That's why he keeps telling us to listen. What Jesus has done is providing something objective and immovable in which to put our hope. Don't put it in the results. Put it in the word. Sow the seed. Go to sleep. I'm going to do it. If you want proof of that, watch me deal with a storm. The word of God spoken by Jesus Christ to which we all must listen is perfect to accomplish all of God's saving purposes, including your salvation and mine. Including, by the way, the salvation of those God means to save in your families, in your homes, in our lives, in our spheres of influence. The word is sufficient. The word of God is enough. This word causes growth. It blinds and confuses. It saves. It shines. It reveals. It frees. It's powerful. It determines. Believe it. Believe it. By His grace, His Spirit will bear fruit in us that is pleasing to Him as this same Spirit reveals Him to us more and more. Don't look at the soil. Look to the seed. The Word is sufficient for all of it, for everything that needs to happen. The Word is sufficient. The kingdom will not be built, completed, or controlled by human beings. And its consummation will not be sped up by our work or religious devotion or activity. It is in the hands of God for whom promise is made, our promise is kept. This is not only true for the world. So the word is not only perfect for the wind and the waves of the cosmos and the consummation of all things. It is also perfect for you. For you. When the wind and waves beat against your boat so hard, you wonder if he cares. And you think the only thing that makes sense is to abandon ship and try to make it to shore on your own. Beloved, it's perfect then too. It's perfect then too. Trust in Jesus. Rest in his word. Every word of God proves true. It is perfect This is Jesus for you and me. Amen.